You're listening to The Book Alchemist with me, Heather Sutty. Psychotherapist and author Angela Trainer is my guest on this episode. Angela has self-published two books and she talks about the therapeutic power of writing and reading and the books which have shaped her personal and professional life. She talks about soul friends, grief and living with illness. Angela Trainer is one inspiring woman. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Hello there, Heather. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. So happy to have you on today. Now, you are a psychotherapist. Correct. How much has reading been a part of your life, not just in your personal life, but also your professional life? Well, it's been huge, obviously, in training. There are lots and lots of books to be read, and some of those can be fairly dry and turgid. Some of them you wouldn't choose to read yourself. But some of the books that got me into my training as a therapist in the first place were really pivotal and really special, and I, and I reread them to this day. Uh, the one that comes to mind is The Road Less Travelled by M. Scott Peck. You know, it was a huge turning point. Going way, way back, um, my father trained as a marriage counsellor at, at one point earlier in his life. And he had a book by John Powell called Will the Real Me Stand Up? I would have been about 14 or 15, but this book really spoke to me. Um, makes a lot of sense to me today why it spoke to me. So reading books about real life, about the challenges of life, about change, uh, going further on uh, as I moved into my career, the book by Carolyn Mace, Why People Don't Heal, was another big turning point for me, looking at the psychology of health and healing and how we can hold on to our wounds and our what she called woundology. So lots and lots of books made real important, crucial crossroads and turning points in my career. Books are therapy, aren't they? I think they are therapy. I think they're therapy for the writer as well as the reader. And and I, I teach therapeutic writing. I use it with most of my clients and it's certainly been therapeutic for me. Um, so I think, you know, the world of words and the world of images and pictures and that art form is the language of the heart. I think it's the language of the soul. And I think it transports us, it, it can allow us to feel connected, you know. And one of the other loves of my life is reading about places and places in time. There's a fab book just now I'm reading, a huge big thing called Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities. Um, it's transporting me, you know. I haven't been to Istanbul, but I will be going. It's transporting me to another world, another life now. You know, for someone who might never get there, and God willing, I do get there. I think these kind of books are really important. And then books where people tell their stories or we can connect with them. Books that make us laugh. Books that make us cry. And sometimes just books that are bubblegum for the brain. They get <laughs> us away from whatever's going on. You know, mm. we've had that fallout with the family member or the person at work sitting down with a cup of tea and a good book can take you right out of that skid and move you into a better playing field to come back from. You mentioned writing as a therapy. You yourself have written two books. Tell us about the first book that you wrote and what made you decide to share your story. Well, I didn't. 
That's the first thing. I didn't decide <laughs> to write either of them and they were never written as books, which is why the writing is fairly shabby because <laughs> they were never, ever meant to be books. Um, I knew the value of therapeutic writing, of journaling. And back in 2016, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, given six months and said, I'm 80, I've had a great life. I'm not spending it in hospitals. Mm -hmm. So we went on a journey together of... Uh, conscious dying. So I I felt that I accompanied him on that journey, helping him to cross that threshold. Uh, he had a great, tremendous belief that the that death was not the end. Um, but that didn't make it particularly easy uh, to say goodbye. But we went on that journey together and I made a conscious decision to support him every way that I could and to spend as much time with him as I could on that road. And I began to write about my experiences, my feelings, my fears, my mixed up emotions. All of it was laid bare for me, mm -hmm. no one else, just <laughs> for me. Um, and then having written stuff down, uh, I shared a wee bit with a couple of pals that I'd written and they said, oh, oh, do you have that written down anyway? Can I get a copy of that? Mm -hmm. That was quite good. And that escalated. Uh, people started connecting with me on social media through friends of friends, people who were going through similar things or had gone through. And the thing that I couldn't get my head around was how universal grief, loss and uh, bereavement are. Whether someone's died 20 years ago, you know, love never dies. And I'm not saying that grief never dies, but grief changes and there are lots of different stages and they don't fall to plan or order. So I was getting messages from people who'd lost someone 20 years ago and saying, I totally relate to what you've written about blah, you know, about the missing or about the fact that other people think, well, they're dead, it's a year, you should have moved on by now. Uh, so it wasn't ever planned as a book, but gradually I shared bits and pieces and a very good friend who is a writer, Monica Smith, said to me, I'm going to save up all your posts. I'm going to keep them for you and put them into a wee file. You might want to use this one day. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was horrified at the thought of it. <laughs> she did send it. It lay in a drawer for three months. I couldn't read it. It was too raw. Mm -hmm. It was too painful. Mm -hmm. uh, but one night, I did pick it up and I did begin to weave through it. And a good friend put me in touch with a mutual friend of ours, Mickey McMonagall who said, I can get that into some kind of shape for you. It's going to be raw. It's going to be real. Uh, we're not going to polish it up. And we decided we would uh, publish it for pancreatic cancer, that all the profits were going to pancreatic cancer. I thought we'd sell about 20, 30, 40 copies if we were lucky. But hey, we're still selling it. It's still going out. It's never going to be a bestseller. Mm -hmm. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But I am really heartened by the responses I've had from people, and I really do mean all over the world, mm -hmm. who have, I, we did it on Audible too, on Amazon, a paperback, Kindle and Audible. And I've been absolutely blown away by the responses that people have had, really quite shocked. So that that's how the first book didn't really come about. <laughs> and the title of the book is? Is Love Never Dies. Love that phrase. And I think also, you know, I have a friend whose father died of pancreatic cancer and it's one of those cancers that is is 
voracious and you don't have a, a, a very long periods of time between diagnosis and so it's it's really really difficult and I think what's lovely about your book is that so many people have taken comfort in it. That's been massive. That 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 uh, spurred me on for what we'll probably talk about next was that I, for all I knew the value of the writer writing, I had really no concept of just how valuable someone's story could be to someone else who didn't have the same story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost a bit like you know, the 12-step programme or going to an AA meeting, you know, that is all about people who share their experiences and um, you can learn from other people's wins and losses, highs and lows. For sure. And I think, as I said earlier, that sense of isolation, that sense of loneliness, uh, you know, I feel as if I've been allowed to accompany people on their journey. And, you know, from the feedback I've had from a lot of people, they've felt that I was walking with them, that they had a kindred spirit or a, an anamkara, you know, a, a soul friend who understood them at a soul level, you know, not the logical, rational, reasonable level where we can think things through, but really at a deeply emotional, uh, experiential level where we're able to just feel that sense of connection. When you said there about thinking things through, sometimes it's about feeling things through, isn't it? I think uh, that that's that's one of the, the the major things that we can do in writing and reading that we can actually be switched on. You know, I mean, some people will do it watching a good movie, but with a with the written word or the spoken word. There's, a, there's another sort of extra sensory perception, I think, that can be triggered where we're allowed to create in our imagination. It may not be the world that the reader, that the writer was conveying, rather. You know, people have told me things that I didn't say. Mm-hmm. You know that bit where you said, no, I never actually said that. <laughs> and somebody said the other day, what's that bit in your book with the metaphor about the river? And I've looked long and hard, there's no metaphor about a river, but that's what they imagined, Mm -hmm. that's what they felt or heard. Mm -hmm. So I think it very quickly moves from uh, the story you share to how it goes through their filters, how it goes through Mm -hmm. the reader or the listener's filters, and that's the power of story. Story's been used for thousands of years as a healing art form and a tool for healing. I think also the fact that you're a psychotherapist and you have this lovely calm aura. You know, I love being around you because I run around at 100 miles an hour and even this morning you were like, take your time. And I just, we hugged and instantly just was like, zen. <laughs> I, I must tell my husband you said that. He he wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. If you'd seen me before I left the house this morning, because the first thing I told you was I thought I'd left my handbag on the roof of the car. So I do present very well. I polish up well, but all the last. And tell us, how many years have you been a psychotherapist? Too long. Uh, probably now we must be hitting 36 years wow. easily. Okay. A long time. So lots of your professional experiences, you know, possibly, um, you know, examples of, of work that you've done with clients feed into your work. And you didn't just write Love Never Dies, you wrote a second book. Yeah. 
Well, I didn't really, because I didn't <laughs> plan to write that either. And it was never meant to be a book. So um, my father died in 2016. And three years later, at the beginning of 2019, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and told I would need a mastectomy, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And that was a bit of a shocker. That wasn't one I had really ever prepared myself for. Um, and I felt perfectly fit and healthy, you know, as healthy as ever at that point in my life. That was probably the biggest shock. So everything moves quickly. We are really blessed with the most amazing service in this country. And things move very, very quickly. I always keep a journal. I always write down what I'm feeling, even if it's just about a cream donut. Um, <laughs> I write, I write stuff down because it's good for me. It takes me into another part of my brain. And I found myself in hospital the day before surgery and he popped up again, Mickey McMonagall, who had edited the first book and sent me a message and said, I hope you're writing this all down. This is the next book. Mm -hmm. And I said, away you go. Mm -hmm. And your heed, I think, was what <laughs> I said. And I just said, Mickey, don't be silly. Who wants to read about somebody having breast cancer? Nobody, it's been done. You know, everybody's got the T-shirt. Uh, nobody's interested. And he said, just write it all down. Even if it's just for you, mm -hmm. write it all down. But start now. So I moved my shift a bit and wrote more deeply, began to naturally write as if someone else might be reading it, thinking maybe one day a family member or some a friend might benefit from reading some of the scribbles. And again, it just evolved. It just happened. I ended up with a ridiculous 80,000 words, which was mad. <laughs> uh, thank God he managed to whittle that down a bit. But Basically, it was journal style. It literally was indie order. Here's what's happening now. Now, what was wonderful about this book was it grew itself. So I say to people that think, ooh, who wants to read about breast cancer? Don't read the first 100 pages. Mm -hmm. You know, skip that bit. Because the book evolved into then, this is not a book about breast cancer. This is a book about life. This is it's called The Beauty of Broken. And it's about the fact that we're all going to be broken more than once in our lives. Mm -hmm. It's why we're here. But it's how we repair, how we use the golden glue, like the Japanese art form of kintsugi, the bowl, the navy bowl with the golden flecks of glue through it, that the broken repaired bowl is of more worth and value than the perfect bowl that preceded it. Mm-hmm. And that we're all going to get smashed up, we're all going to get broken, we're all going to get chipped, we're all going to get scratched. But it's how we put ourselves back together, that's the growth, that's the soul growth and the learning. So the book took on a life of its own and it became about how do you get your life back? How do you heal? How do you repair? And then I realised it wasn't really about cancer at all, it was about any life challenge that anybody came across, that the themes, that the learnings, that the techniques, if you like, that I had to put everything I told everyone else to use into practice, that these were universal and they could be applied to redundancy, they could be applied to the loss of status, they could be applied to the loss of a business, uh, any life transition, emptiness syndrome, mm -hmm. again, loss and bereavement. Uh, that all of these losses that we experience, all of these 
big shake-up life changes that happen all have a seam of gold running under them. If we know how to look for it, we know how to mine it, and we know how to use it to not just repair ourselves and get back, but actually to become stronger in the broken places, more beautiful. One of the beautiful things about your book is that you're paying it forward, aren't you? It's the only way I could do it. I, I couldn't I couldn't not turn the graces of these experiences into something that was shared, not just the book of the story, but that it really felt it would be wrong to make from it. Uh, and, and I have made from it. I've had a lot of fun doing this. It's is marvellous. Uh, you've been tremendous. You've been so supportive of it right from the get-go. That's all been a wonderful journey. But it really felt important that I wanted to make sure that the energy from it that people gave to it got past where it might do a wee bit more good. So we donated all the profits from, the, well, still are, uh, the Beauty of Broking to Lily's legacy. Uh, Lily uh, Douglas, my wee friend who had uh, Ewing sarcoma, who died at the age of 14 just last year, mm-hmm. uh, just over a year ago. And I followed Lily on, on social media. She was a friend of, of in fact, Mickey the editors and her mum. And uh, we got a wee bit involved with Lily. And she kept me going. She was my inspiration before I had cancer. Uh, when I had cancer, she was definitely my go-to guide for how to live uh, with the fear of death and dying. And she was a tremendous inspiration. So Jane, Lily's mum, has set up a trust uh, to build a holiday home for kids with Ewing sarcoma. And uh, half of the profits of the book are going to that and the other half for my friend, uh, Chloe Homewood, who set up a charity called The Everyone Project which was to bring mindfulness practice, she was a mindfulness teacher, into places that would never have been able to have it. Uh, She died a year, just after or just before Lily, at the age of 51. She just dropped down. Three three beautiful children, uh, really quite a tragic set of events, a healthy, lovely woman, and she just dropped one day. And... uh, I mentioned this in the book too about the fact that, you know, I'm bleating on about breast cancer and poor me and how hard it is for me. You know, I used to say there are people that haven't wakened up this morning. Mm-hmm. We've got to remember how lucky we are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have a cancer diagnosis, we could call it the chancer. You get another chance, mm-hmm. you know. Even if it's another few weeks, another few months or another few years, you're getting a chance that other people who may be younger than you And there were quite a few younger people than me who died during the course of my recovery. So that was a really sober focus for me and it's helped to keep their memories alive. So half goes to getting mindfulness into, for example, kids with special needs, the homeless. Mm. You know, who knew that the homeless would benefit from the practice of mindfulness, that they need it as much as the busy business execs? Uh, and that there's something good, something beautiful going to grow out of the the project itself. What's been the response to the books? Uh, It's been overwhelming. It's been sobering. 
it's been humbling. And I know sometimes I don't like that word. It sounds a bit ugh. But it has been very, very humbling. Uh, there are people who have read it who haven't made it, uh, who I still have the feedback from about how it helped them on their journey. Uh, and it's it, for me, it's lovely that it does seem to be a wee bit timeless. It does seem to be the kind of thing that it'll trickle on over the years. It's not something that's going to go out of date because the messages are pretty timeless that are in the books. When you're not doing your psychotherapy work or journaling, um, what types of books do you read? You mentioned bubblegum for the brain. Um, what types of books do you enjoy switching off to? Well, the one that I've really loved, and this came from the book face group that you set up, it was a recommendation for a book called Paper Cup oh, yes. by Karen Campbell. And oh my goodness, I've not finished it yet, so don't spoil it. But that has really taken me on a journey. Funnily enough, we're talking about homeless. Mm -hmm. uh, that really gave me another insight into, uh, you know, I like to think when I give someone money who's homeless, I look in their eyes, I put the money in their hand, I speak to them. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. I don't actually sit down and spend time, you know. I don't actually really connect. I, I, get, I make myself feel better. Mm -hmm. And that book really gave me an insight into there. But for the grace of God, go I. Absolutely. You're a few paychecks away from that road. And that was a transformational story. Uh, so, you know, that that was a, that certainly I wouldn't say is a book for entertainment, although it's hell of a funny. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one, that I'm enjoying just now is a book by Annie Lamott. And she writes marvellous books about uh, kind of spiritual edge stuff. The title itself is great. One of them's called Help, Thanks, Wow, Three Essential Prayers. You know, our titles say it all. <laughs> uh, the one I'm reading just now, uh, it's about writing. It's called Bird by Bird. For any budding writers that are out there, she's an excellent writing teacher. I wish I'd read that book before I wrote the two that I wrote. Ah, okay. Just to pick up on what you said about Paper Cup, um, I read Paper Cup about a year ago and I can't remember how I found it, but I got in touch with the author, Karen Campbell, who uh, is a former police officer and she's written eight other books and I had never read anything quite like it before because like you, I will make a donation or I'll buy someone a cup of tea and a sausage roll from Greg's and I will look them in the eye and I'll say, there you go. And I was so touched by it that I invited her along to one of our book face events and um, she came along and it, it's funny, there was, I can only explain it as magic in the room because what happened that day was unlike anything, any other book event that I've hosted. So basically, uh, there's another girl in the group called Karen Campbell, um, not the author, and I had to put Karen Campbell on a table. You know, I do a table plan for all of these events. So everyone turns up, it's a full house and Karen does the interview and it's really great. And off the back of the interview, I mentioned a statistic because I used to work with someone who works for shelter and they told me that basically the general population are only three paychecks away from being homeless because you can't, you know, everything crumbles. And I, what I loved about the book, and I said this, was that it really, it gave you a sense of empathy and humility and why every person that you see on the street has a story. They are a mother, a daughter, a sister, a brother, an uncle, an aunt, a dad. And off the back of it, this girl called Ailey Watson spoke up. Now, I don't know if you know Ailey. So, I do know Ailey. In fact, 
I trained Ailey. Did you? Right. So Ailey's, I've got, I actually got goosebumps bringing this up and I, I hope she won't mind me mentioning her. But Ailey said, I loved your book and I've also been homeless. But the other thing was, Ailey had just moved to Dumfries and Galloway and the original Bookface event was cancelled because we had to move it because there was a gas leak in the building. So I knew that Ailey was living in Dumfries and Galloway so she was my first person to say, look, please don't make the journey. But the funny thing is, the author, Karen Campbell, lives in Dumfries and Galloway and I forgot to put the author on the main table. So I thought, I'll just go on, there's a space in table 11, go on table 11. Who did she sit opposite? But Ailey, so on the same table is Ailey, who's homeless, living in Dumfries and Galloway now. She's She's got home with Karen. And it was honestly, it was, I'm not explaining it very well. You're explaining it perfectly. It was one of those things. It was like... Oh, shivers. Uh-huh. And it, everyone was so moved by that because of Ailey's bravery and courage to explain that she had been there and that she loved this book so much. There's a, I think, you know, the, the word that I use a lot in my books and I wish I could tell you what it is and show you under a microscope is grace is just how we let the light in you know how we let the graces in the blessings in and that when somebody writes a book like that that is so from the heart you know she's obviously tapping in to a really deep place within her of empathy and knowledge and understanding from her experience that opens a portal I, I really do believe that, that it opens a portal. We can't see it. Maybe some people can, I can't. We can't see it, but we can touch it and we can be blown away by it. It's almost like we touch it and we get burned. It yeah. is so vibrant yeah. when that kind of stuff happens. These synchronicities are, you know, I sometimes call them in, in my writing, shoulder taps. When, you know, life, the mystery, whatever you want to call it, uh, some people call it God. Mm-hmm. That brings out other people in hives. So change your language. Yeah. When that experience happens, it actually physically charges through us and we feel it physically. Oh, it's visceral. It's visceral. And that silence that happens uh-huh. where it's uh-huh. it's a thick blanket yeah. of connection. In the, honestly, in the room, I've still got goosebumps even thinking about it. Everyone was, it was just like, Wow. You know, it was just, it was it was gorgeous. And that's why I love bringing people together over books because there's there's an exchange of energy. You know, there really is. Um, I could sit and chat to you all day, Angela. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Um, I know that your first two books were unplanned, but do you think you've got another in you? I don't know. Uh, you know, sometimes I think you need to write because you've got something to say and... I'll be really grateful if 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 that's my disaster stories over. <laughs> it would be nice to write something. I'm doing some writing. Uh, you know, I am very aware that the writing is is not is not carefully crafted writing. You know, I didn't write with any great knowledge of how to write. I just wrote mm-hmm. from the heart. Uh, I am now uh, attending a writing course at Strathclyde Uni and to see what comes out of that, to see if perhaps there is a stimulus for something else. But I really do believe you should write for yourself if by chance something... You can lose a wee bit of the fun in the production side. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always been very big on... uh, I didn't really want to go after publishers because I didn't want to turn it into a career. I've got a career. Mm -hmm. 
So I used Amazon, which was great for me because I could do what I wanted. I'm aware when you get involved with publishers and agents, things change and it's a job and it's deadlines and it's pressure. Uh, so I don't know that I really want to go down that road. I think I'll just allow it to be generic and see if anything surfaces and at the end of the day, if anybody wants to buy it, we'll let you think of another charity. <laughs> Love it. Angela Trainer. thank you so much. Thanks, Heather. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take 30 seconds to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps. New episodes drop every Thursday. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.